HVAC 360, episode number 26, Chartered Institution of Building Services Engineering. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Friendly neighborhood host, Matt Nelson, for another episode of HVAC 360. Uh, we have a really great episode for you today. Um, this is actually a, another first for me. We have a, a transatlantic Skype call. So, uh, actually, it turned out very, very well. Uh, I hope you enjoy the, uh, the fidelity of it all. Um, and uh, I, you know what, I'm not going to say too much here, uh, but I will say that uh, uh, this is a conversation I had with, uh, with Andy Ford, who is the current president of the uh, Chartered Institution of Building Services Engineering, or SIBSI, uh, as it would be uh, uh, called anachronistically. Um, so uh, we had a, a great conversation talking about a little bit about um, uh, engineering in, in the U.K., and, uh, and then what they're doing there, and uh, talk about Sipsy, of course. So uh, I hope you enjoy the interview, and uh, let's cut to the tape. This week we're talking with uh, Andy Ford, who is the uh, current president of the Chartered Institution of Building Sciences Engineers. Good morning, Andy. Good morning. Good morning. So tell me a little bit about your, your background. Uh, well, I, I'm a, an engineer. I, I left school and uh, went to university to study mechanical engineering when I was 18. Uh, Bath University, that was. That's in the southwest of uh, England. Um, then I, I came across building services uh, as I left, really, and uh, I went to join a company that actually structured itself as a democratic company which is what appealed to me as a consulting engineer and then I went there for some eight years or so and then I started my own business and that's um, where I've been until 2009 when I sold it to uh, my current company here Mott McDonald so that's oh, a basic background so so what is what does Mott McDonald do what is what is your day, day job entail uh, my day job is uh, I'm a uh, I'm a technical director in Mott McDonald and uh, I run an element of it which is called Fulcrum, which is actually the name of my company that came through, which specialises in uh, low energy design. Has done since sort of about '84 when we started. We've been designing low energy buildings, and uh, more recently we became much more involved in looking at the wider scale of how buildings fit into the whole built environment and how you reduce the carbon issues on a larger built environment. So so that's one of the reasons we joined with uh, Mott McDonald, which is an international consultancy. Uh, it, it's uh, global. It's 14,000-odd people. My company was 150 when we, we joined. So it deals with... Um, it's a civil engineering, water engineering, education buildings, building structures, building services, trains, planes, all sorts of things is what it does. Um, and the reason we're joining is we actually see the future being being to do with cities, I think, and the way that building services and plugs into civil engineering is quite key to how that actually all works. So I guess what at what point growing up did you know you wanted to become an engineer? Hmm. That's. Uh, I think I always imagined that engineering was uh, all about design. So I've always liked making things and taking things to pieces. It's, it's sort of you know everything from my bike in the kitchen and then the motorbike in the kitchen to trying to build uh, boats and sailing boats, uh, making things everything from sandcastles when I was a kid and damming streams, which caused flooding downstream when I'm at uh, junior school. I had to go and apologize at one point for flooding somebody's garden because I helped to uh, dam a stream in uh, when I was at primary school. <laughs> so, so that's from quite an early age, I think, really. So, so yeah. That, that's a pretty, pretty successful civil engineering uh, adventure there early on. 
yeah, no, I didn't know it would happen. It's amazing. <laughs> Slightly embarrassing. There you go. <laughs> so, so at the university, I guess, what, what were some of the favorite subjects that you studied there? Um, well, it's interesting, really, because I think it, it's design is what I've always been fascinated with. So I, I enjoyed the, uh, the the bits of they had, Bath the University. They had a, a a complete design course. So you'd spend um, two afternoons a week on design as a topic, which is a sort of a ties again to all the disciplines in engineering, and that's what has always fascinated me. Um, that plus the laboratories. You know, frankly, I think going into the labs and hands-on approaches. You know, breaking bits of metal, seeing what happens when you blow things through holes. It's just that sort of stuff fascinates me. So. Now, now was, the, was the universe, I mean, did you know, you know, aside from engineering, that you specifically wanted to go into sort of the, the HVAC, the building uh, sciences kind of um, angle? To be honest, I didn't even know it existed. <laughs> I like most people when I, was, uh, when I was in a building, I never realized that that was a, an engineered object. Uh, I, you know, you're just not, and if you're not in the built in, you know, built environment industry, I don't think you realize how, how much engineering and how much design goes into buildings. Most people just walk through them. They experience them, but they don't really see them. Uh, I, I went, one of the nice things, I suppose, at university is that I, I shared flats with uh, quite a few architects and uh, that was an interesting introduction to the whole process. So were there were there classes specifically geared at all uh, towards uh, building engineering? Uh, no, <laughs> I did mechanical engineering, which is a general sort of a general engineering. So I was actually sponsored through university by a diesel engine manufacturer. So I, which is a, we did things called sandwich courses. I don't know whether you have them there, but but uh, it's a. I did a thing called a thin sandwich course. So uh, you'd have one semester in university, then one semester in the industry. Uh, and I went through um, a factory that made engines from raw materials. So they had a foundry at one end and engines came out the other. Wow. So I went through each of the stages from the foundry through to the machine shops, engine test and production engineering all the way through. So it was great from that point of view. But then I decided I definitely didn't want to be in a small town in the middle of Gloucestershire. I wanted to be more in the heart of things in London and more focused on design. There's not many opportunities to design in in that sort of engineering. As a consultant, you get the opportunity to design thousands of things, but uh, not as a manufacturer. Right. You, you're kind of you know trying to make it you know better one step at a time. Yeah, you can make steps, but there's 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 few opportunities. Like you know, it's not wasn't a huge manufacturing. Uh, Area. So, so there was only about four or five people in the the design section of the thing, and there wasn't any vacancies. So, I moved on. So found now, by mistake, <laughs> building services. So, so yeah. how, how did you stumble upon it then? I guess what? Well, uh... it was literally, I suppose, stumbling. is would be an accurate description. I mean, I was at the time just uh, at the university, just finishing my degree deciding I did want to move into something uh, something else that led me out of out of factories I was not I was a bit fed up with being in a factory at the time so I was uh, looking for things so I was just looking through the magazines and I just saw this advertisement for a company called Max Fordham and Partners that was just really attractive um, uh, it was just looking for people who were interested in buildings but they were building services engineers so I actually had a phone interview, and I went to start working for them the next week. Wow! So that's where it began. So, so now, are there are there any, I guess, schools in England um, that you know do train uh, engineer, you know, building services engineers? Schools? When you mean uh, well, what? Stage? Oh, universities, or you know, university? Yeah, yeah. There, there are. I mean, um, one of the. The most uh, specific is, is the London South Bank University, uh, which was uh, after the war finished. That that became the um, the home for building services. Really, it's um, it. I think when they they demobilised, 
they offered uh, people leaving the military opportunities to go into various different industries and train up and that that was the what is now London South Bank was the original uh, heating and ventilating college in London and uh, it's where quite a few people went into indeed my mother-in-law was one of them <laughs> so, yeah so now are there as far as getting into the you know building services field so to speak i mean are there different there are different paths or does everybody kind of follow the same kind of format that you know anybody that that is designing now no, it's it's really interesting moment at the right now i mean the the the, the actual field of uh, building services and heating and ventilating has tended to be People have come into it from outside. They've come in from, like me, like myself, uh, come in from uh, being a mechanical engineer and then finding yourself in something and either, then either doing a master's in building services and moving into the profession. Or alternatively, people have, have uh, sort of started on site as uh, plumbers, fitters, and then progressed up through a sort of stepladder approach doing HNDs and then degrees and coming into it that way. Uh, right now, there's there's been, I mean, it's a terrible state at the moment in the UK in terms of uh, young people coming into the industry or young people having any work at all, really. So there's been a big effort to try and introduce apprenticeships, which are a bit like I described in some ways, uh, the, the course I went through. So it's... Um, uh, Mott McDonald, for instance, has just been working to establish one for civil engineers where you, it's a two-day-a-week release course with a, a sort of educational provider. And then, um, you know, you, so you actually train up to reach a degree level but actually working during that period. And I think I, think I benefited personally enormously from from having... Uh, practical involvement in the industry mixed up with uh, the intellectual challenges of being at a university. And I do think that is the way forward. And I think the stepladder approach is, is really good. It needs to be, you know, as, as SIBSI president, what I'm trying to do at the moment is encourage it to happen so that it's a, so the opportunities to join are available from different times in your life and different levels of interest. Because you need quite a wide mix of talent these days to be a good building services engineer. It's not, it's not quite as narrow as it used to be. And certainly the focus is really on us in terms of uh, carbon and reducing the need for resources to make buildings comfortable. Now, uh, now, now SIBSI, the uh, 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 institute, I don't know if you use, use that acronym, the SIBSI, this institution, we call it. It's, it's called SIBSI, generally, yeah. Okay. Saying it the long way gets rather boring. Yeah. <laughs> I, I completely understand. Uh, now, they have the, the Young Engineers Network. Now, when did that, yeah. when did that start? Um, now, I think that started, let me see, I think that started about in the late 90s in, Hong, in Scotland, I think it started. There was a young group in Scotland in 92, uh, and and then Hong Kong came along in 2000, and then it's really started to accelerate. Probably since 2006, it, it, we started a London one, and now they're really, really going. Now we've got over a thousand members in the various yen groups, and it's accelerating, which is great. It's really good news, really. Yeah. So, so what are some of the benefits that, 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 you know, specifically those young engineers get from that? Well, they, I mean, one, what, what SIBSI has just done this year when you, when you join uh, the institution is that like, like previously, uh, you used to join and then if you wanted access to uh, the, the knowledge, which um, sort of the, the guides and uh, all the backup information of technical memorandum and uh, knowledge series, all this sort of information of which is which is sort of the diet, sort of distilled knowledge of of all the engineers within the institution. You would then have to buy the specific ones you wanted. Um, one of the things we've done 
as of 2012 is to open that up to anybody who actually joins. So if you want to join as a member of SIBC, well, that includes the student membership, you can then get online access to all that knowledge. So part of, you know, as long as you remain a member, you can get access to all of it. So we've stopped. We're shifting our, our approach to doing research and knowledge management to meaning that if you're a member, you should be able to get all that knowledge and then you need to contribute your efforts into developing it. So it's a two-stage plan. Excellent. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I guess, you know, focusing a little bit uh, on engineering uh, in the UK, um, you, you kind of denote a little bit about the demographic with the uh, the younger engineers not not being so prevalent i mean is that is yeah. that sort of you know they're attracted to to other fields of interest or you know what do you well i mean it's, yeah i mean when i say that a lot of engineers uh, and building services have come from the other side so if you just take electrical engineering for instance you know, one of the top places you might do that would be Imperial College and what was happening was a lot of those engineers were actually going into the financial industry because there's hugely better returns coming out there so and um, that has slightly slowed down and I'm trying to encourage people to come back this way but it's it is a it is a worry um, there is a, a bulge of older engineers going through and I, around my age you know I'm, I'm 57 now but that sort of area there's a, there's a there's a hill of you know, engineering and we'll, we'll start to leave and there's a bit of a dip behind us. So we do need to, to draw people in from a wider cross-section now. In particular, you know, we, we're only in Sibsi, I think we're still taking a very, very small percentage of uh, female engineers coming into the profession. So we really need to push hard to widen that up. So what is, you know, when you, when you kind of say, hey, you know what, you know, I want to be a professional engineer. I mean, I guess is that something that, you know, once you get into the industry, it's, it's a natural progression or is it, you know, exclusive to people who have actually gone to university? Um, what's the process to, to become no, a professional? No, it's absolutely not exclusive to um, being at university. Well, there's various levels. Um, you can uh, certainly to join SIBSI, you do not have to be a, a, um, a degree level engineer. You don't. You can just join, and then that gives you the structure to to progress upwards. So we go I engine, eventually it's C engine. C engine is chartered engineer, which is uh, sort of equivalent to professional engineer in uh, the states. Um, it's a globally recognised badge. Chartered engineer will get you all over the place. Uh, you have to follow a, a structured training course after after university, or um, a, there are structured training courses to get you to the point you want to be. And you can do this through an interview process and proving you have the necessary competencies. Um, chartered engineer isn't just building; uh, it's it's um, it's all the engineering institutes actually. Uh, Will, will deliver the same thing. So they all all are pushing for the same basic competences, which is just a demonstrating you know what you're doing. It takes about, if you leave university, you usually wouldn't manage to reach chartered into status for about five years afterwards. So it, it, it takes you about that long to go through and achieve the competences. But as I say, you can you can do that from whichever level necessary. Now, you might end up having the best place, the best thing to do might end up to be to take some time out and go to a course to do some of it all in one intense point. But, yeah, you can get in at different levels. So, and I, and I guess just to, just to make sure I completely understand, could you be in the trades and then progress up to, you know, become a chartered engineer? Definitely. Definitely. You can do that, and I mean, I, I think this it's really interesting. There, I mean, I it's great to be a chartered engineer if you want to be one, but none of this works unless we have a really, really strong supply chain, and that requires engineering skills and engineering knowledge 
all the way down. You know, I mean, wherever you are in that supply chain, you're adding something really serious to uh, the ability to deliver because it's about making things and delivering things that work. So you need people who are skilled at every single level. So absolutely, you can come in. You may have to take a, a master's course if you came in at a one level, you might find you need to do some more academic effort in order to get to the next level. Depends on exactly what you had to start with. But there's definitely a step ladder which will get you through to being a chartered engineer. And that's, a, as I say, it's a globally recognized qualification then. Now, how, uh, you know, just, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, <laughs> just, just, just being a colonist over here, the, uh, it, what, what is, uh, you know, the international aspect of, of being an engineer in England um, rather than just, just working, you know, nationally? Well, it's probably one of the reasons that people going into engineering in, in the UK is uh, that they actually, internationally, the British engineers have, have got a pretty good reputation and it does enable us to travel around. And there's a, a lot of um, consultancies, admittedly a few of them are being bought up by the Americans at the moment, but that are, are worldwide. And uh, you can travel around the world absolutely definitely as an engineer. And that is, as I say, it's one of the reasons people come into it is because it, it opens up the opportunity for travel quite widely. So you'd say most most of the most of the firms that are that in, based in the UK are more international firms then. Um, no, it depends where you where you look. I mean, we're part of the European Union, so some of the the large manufacturers are are here, and they use uh, it's useful because English is a you know, we happen to speak English quite naturally ourselves here, uh, whereas people from other European Union countries don't necessarily do so, so it's quite helpful for them to be able to have England sitting right next to them. And they use that as a part of an international way of getting engineering around the world. The consultancies, there's, there, there's, a, there's a sort of very large, there's very large consultancies, and then there's a very long tail in this country in particular of small consultancies, so very small ones, so you know, four or five people scale companies. Indeed, many of the construction companies are very, very small scale, although there's some enormous ones as well. So it's it's a it's an interesting mix. Part of the challenge really if you're trying to actually decarbonize our whole built environment is is that long tail. So mm-hmm. So, the, so you'd say that long tail would be more national on, on the scale of what they what they do. They're, yeah, yeah, they 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 tend to be working here nationally in the country, or even very locally. I mean, there are some very small ones that do work internationally, and I think those ones that are, I mean, I suppose the ones that are dealing with uh, building physics and uh, sustainability specifically. And maybe working closely with architects, they they quite often go international because the architectural practices that are ambitious um, work internationally. Now, is there a lot of uh, kind of marriages between the um, engineers and the architects? I mean, is that is that something that's prevalent? There's lots of what, sorry. Uh, if you have like uh, firms that have both architectural and engineering in house, or those things tend to be separate. Um, there are some firms that that are sort of truly that have that. There's not very many that are um, sort of complete mixes of architecture and engineering. It's it's still the case that the teams tend to come together. So, uh, for instance, my company Falcon, when we were working, we worked with lots and lots of architects. <coughs> quite. Um, Many many times over, so you could you could look at it and you'd see uh, uh, the sort of our clients. You see a chain of clients, but you'd also see repeat work with lots and lots of architects. So that we tended to work regularly with them, and indeed with other structural engineers. So that the teams would quite commonly come together. But there aren't that many uh, companies that are both architecture and engineering in one place. It's uh, 
I mean, I've noticed, for instance, that uh, Fosters have just taken on a uh, a small engineering group, and I've there's a few others that are doing that. Generally, they they use it to interface with uh, with consulting engineers, and they work quite closely. I mean, we work terribly closely at the very very early stages, sort of before before there is a building. Um, trying to think through what the building form should be. We work a lot at that stage, um, and we're becoming more typical now. Now, what about, uh, I, I guess I have to ask about litigation. Obviously, that's something that, you know, is really, you know, in the U.S. Is, tends to be a little bit more prevalent. How do, how do you see litigation in the U.K.? Um, when there's a recession it gets worse for sure Um, that's you know mostly because people are looking for ways of getting their money Uh, and also during these times you're you're competing hard on price and the resource is quite limited so you you've got a narrow amount of work to do and if you don't do it well it can all go terribly wrong terribly easily so it's really important we have a, a good systems approach to checking how things are done but there is i would say it's still it's it's got better since i was uh, sort of a young engineer there's more collaborative working but it's still quite an aggressive industry it's not a it's not a sort of uniformly uh, comfortable place to be there is there's quite a bit of aggression in terms of uh, i mean aggression is not necessarily the right word i mean commercial aggression if you like i'm not quite sure how you say that but but you know is there litigation Definitely there's litigation. Will it get worse? I really hope not. I think it's important that we uh, manage to avoid that. And we've got a lot to do in terms of being innovative and changing our future buildings. And we, we, if we want to I mean, hit our carbon targets, we've, we've set legally binding carbon targets in this country. And that means we've got to really push hard to do new things uh, so we've got to cope with litigation so you, better ways of dealing with it by discussing exactly who's to blame during the contract agreeing things before they they turn into litigation is important now i, I guess is that something you know because Obviously, when I when I think of you know hitting carbon targets and you know all that kind of relates back to the you know energy and the energy usage. Um, yeah. Is the, is this like uh, uh, I say measurement and verification of your design? Is that something that's um, you know been around, or is that something that's you know that that's being you know I guess forced? Um, onto the stage just by, you know, because they have these carbon targets that they're trying to uh, require? Uh, well, we, we have a, 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 we're into the looking at the fourth carbon budget at the moment. That's what's sort of going on. And there is a, we have to hit targets as the, as the UK. Legally binding targets of our, reducing our carbon from 1990 levels. Now, they have looked at the various industries and they've decided construction is, is one of those uh, uh, low-hanging fruits, I think they call it. It's pretty hard low-hanging <laughs> fruit. But, so there's a lot of, uh, I mean, the building regulations are changing every three years here and they are pushing hard on the carbon targets, very, very hard. And the latest ones are really hard to meet and they aren't the final ones so so it's pushing uh, the involvement of engineers right back into the early stages of design because you cannot meet these sorts of targets without being involved at the very very early stages uh, so I would say yeah the carbon targets are really a major thing in the UK um, they're pushing 
they're challenging and they're getting more challenging and they are embedded in regulation so uh, all engineers have to learn how to do it we do tend to be the bad boys and uh, at, at that stage and it's and it's sort of we're the only ones who sort of know what we're talking about in the design team but you know you've got to get the uh, appointments to catch up with that so that you know, because you might know what you're talking about, but you might not be paid to know what you're talking about. <laughs> so. so, so by hitting the carbon targets, I guess, um, is, is does it trickle down to the, you know, uh, uh, like a building level, like a building contract, saying you're going to design this building to meet, you know, X standards? Yeah. I yeah. guess you know, essentially that's what you're saying that there are codes. Yeah, I'm, in saying, place. I'm saying at the moment, we, uh, until this year, it was a, a predictive level. So, uh, and now they move to the they will check that your building does deliver what it says it's going to do. So, you know, you can see what's happening, um, and you do wonder who's going to take responsibility for all this in the longer term. But it does bring together facilities management and design because that is the next logical step, is linking energy supply, facilities management, and design of buildings all together. I mean, because you're, asked, you're being asked, we have to predict the performance of our buildings almost before there is any design at all. And then we have to make sure that what we said at the beginning turns out in the end to be the truth which is quite a hard task, you know, if you know through the stages you've got to go through and the, the breaks in the process you've got to get past and the fact that you don't necessarily have full control over all this, you eventually have no control over the way that people operate your building at the moment. So it's getting, it's getting tricky and it involves sorting out the contractual arrangements uh, so that such things can be delivered. So, so who's in charge of, of verifying, you know, the, the, the end result? At the moment, um, well, it falls down to uh, within, at the moment it's within the building regulation. So the building regulation, uh, Jack Irvitz is the person, so it's in building mix. And that's, uh, yeah, that's where it lies. Okay. All right, so... Let's let's change focus a little bit. Let's let's talk about the uh, the institution, uh, yeah. Chartered Institution of Building Services Engineers. Yeah. What what is your what is your elevator pitch? What what is the you know what is SIBSI? What is, what are they all about? Uh, right. Okay. So I should know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what is SIBSI? SIBSI is is uh, it's the the institution that brings together. Uh, all those people who are interested in the performance of buildings. Uh, we, we have, uh, it's, it has a, a tagline for the greater comfort of mankind. So it's about changing buildings from shells to being things you want to be in. I think that's it. And that's what building services is. That's what SIBSI does. SIBSI provides a place for all those interested to go and to find out how to do it and to contribute their knowledge to it. So, so what are what are what kind of the origins of SIBSI? When when did it come about? I mean, obviously, it's probably a a fairly old organization. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's changed its name. Um, it's uh, it used to be known as the IHVE Institute of Heating and Ventilating Engineers when I I was uh, a young engineer, and then it became uh, Chartered Institute of Building Services, and then it became Chartered Institute of Building Service Engineering, um, and that is this sort of line. And uh, I. I actually can't remember when it was first <laughs> first came around. It's um, I'm not sure of its actual history. I'd have to get that checked. <laughs> All right, <laughs> well, well, it's well, a bit embarrassing, but there you go. It's uh, been around for a while, shall we say? Yes, we'll Google it. it. Not you know, hundreds it, of years. It's not a. It's not one of these things. It's not one of these old old institutions in, in the UK. It's uh, it's sort of you know. Half a century, that sort of level. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I'm, I'm sure we can Google the uh, the information. I'll, if if yeah. I find it, I'll take a look for it. If I find it, I'll put it on the show notes, uh, just in case people are are dying to know. 
Uh, not yeah. like it's going to show up in Trivial Pursuit or any game shows anytime <laughs> soon. But uh, <laughs> they thought I'd Maybe ask. I'll do that now. Eh? <laughs> now the 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 institution. It's, uh, I guess, you know, unlike what you've, what you've kind of alluded to, it's, it's more than just HVAC, correct? Yes, it is. So it's it's lighting and uh, facades, uh, yeah, public health, all of those things in one place. So, so why, I guess, you know, do you, do you have any idea, you know, the, the rationale? Is it just trying to be all-encompassing in the engineering um, is it, is it, does it take kind of, did it take the place or combine a couple of, uh, um, different societies that, uh, that existed? Uh, it's, well, it, it yeah, I mean, it, essentially, it, without thinking about all those things together, you can't deliver a building. So, so it's, 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 it's combines a number of societies. I mean, it, it has, it has several societies within it. As I say, it's got the Society of Light and Lighting, and it's it's got the Institute of um, Society of Public Health Engineers, uh, and it's got um, you know uh, it has various different groups within it, and it's I suppose it was an umbrella organisation already, but it's becoming more and more so as we go forward. So I guess you know when we're talking about uh, internationally, what, what's what's the what's the reach of uh, of Sibsi? Uh We're in something over ninety countries. I think we've got members scattered all around the world. Um, they are. Uh, we have sort of large groupings in Hong Kong, um, Australia, uh, New Zealand, uh, Ireland. Um, and then we have uh, smaller groupings with 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 sort of country representatives in 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 the sort of the Middle East uh, and in um, I don't know whether we've got that many in South America to be honest, but but beyond that we have small groups in you know we've got country representatives in quite a lot of the countries. China has got country representative. I've been busy visiting them. Um, yeah. A wide, wide range, and then you go down, and you'll find there's there's a few engineers in most countries you come across actually, and those engineers actually travel around quite a lot, so it's not necessarily a, a sort of a fixed place. When I say we've got engineers in a country, we do, and the, some of them are permanently there, but quite often they're actually travelling around, so they'll be in different countries as well. Mm. So what's the what's the process of of becoming the Sibsi president? Um, interesting. <laughs> it's not something I expected to happen to me. Um, I mean, I can really only speak about the process that I came in. Uh, I, I you become involved in the institution as it, as in you you want to add something to it. So uh, I I became involved in in. Um, in contributing to some of the guides and contributing some of the guidance, and then I I, I ended up on um, uh, something called PROD, which is a Publications and Research Output Delivery a Committee. I became involved in a committee. Uh, some people will come in more commonly. People will become involved in their local committee, and then they will go from the local to the national. What happened to me is I was involved in the in the research side of it. And uh, eventually, you you end up onto the council, which is a, is a sort of a larger body of about how big is that? Probably sort of fifty fifty people from uh, all our various areas from around the world and around the country, and uh, the different sort of uh, the different groupings who advise the board, and then from the board. You can then you elected upwards to uh, sorry from the council you're elected up to the board and then from there you can become a vice president you don't ha and there's three vice presidents so you don't have to 
have to be a president if you've been a vice president, but in order to become president, you have to have gone through being a vice president. So it's an election process to get to that one. So it's I was elected member of the council, I was an elected member of the board, and then became the vice president, and then became president, which again is elected. So do you have a, a presidential theme that you have? Yeah, I do. As one does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my 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 theme is actually, uh, it's about it's about respect. In order for, because what I'm trying to work out is is how we actually solve a very very large problem and how, as building engineers, at the heart of this, we need to respect uh, people down our supply chain and the people at the academic level and to respect the various different contributions brought to design by architects, by quantity surveyors, by by structural engineers and surveyors generally, so that we, we have a sort of T-shaped industry and it's really important that we have a good understanding of what each brings to the equation and how to make the best of it how to speak to each other in respectful ways, not to just think of architects as people who do fancy drawings, to understand that they are trying to pull together an awful lot of very complicated ideas and turn it into a product, and the, that we have a place in that, and we should make positive contributions to how that happens. Um, so that's So it's about respect, and then there's a I've got another one which is about driving to get young people to come into this industry because it's it's a really it's a great industry to be in and it's it's creative it, it enables you to get out and about it's project based so you're not working always on the same thing and it enables you to travel the world and finally we just got this an absolute need to drive a continuous cycle of improvement to to deliver on uh, a sustainable future. Excellent. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, you've pretty 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 much hit a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know hot topics there. Um, so I guess uh, anything that uh, uh, surprised you. I always like to ask the you know you became president and you kind of you had kind of an inkling of of what it would all entail, but uh, you know really until you get that appointment and uh, start going through the different uh, you know obligations or activities, was there anything that they kind of said you know I don't think they told me about this one. No, yeah, well, there's, there's quite a lot like that actually. <laughs> it's a really busy time. Um, I suppose that's the bit. You don't realise. I mean, I don't know whether this is just particularly to the timing when there's, there is so much pulling together going on. Um, but I, I didn't realise how much time I was going to be spending trying to trying to link people up to pull them together. And I also didn't realise that as soon as you become president, everybody therefore assumes you know absolutely everything about Sibsi, which is interesting because <laughs> <guess> you don't. <laughs> so, yeah, and you're there for a year, and you've got a heck of a lot to get done. Um, yeah, it's it's been an absolute pleasure, to be honest. It's it's really good. Uh, I I've really been delighted by the uh, the enthusiasm shown by all the people I meet and for our industry, and it's it's great. Yeah, but there's been a few surprises along the way. Like I didn't know I had to go to a white tie dinner. I don't know what is a white tie dinner. <laughs> Those sorts of things. Yeah. I, I'm not sure I even know what a white tie dinner is. Oh uh, well, I'll tell you next week. I've got to get to <laughs> You have to dress up in the, in the white tie and tails. I think it's just be like the word very British sort of thing. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. I, I envision that as as a accident waiting to happen. I just. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it could be a bit splashing. Yeah. 
so I, I guess um, uh, what are, what is you know obviously you've been you've been around the industry a long time you know and you have the, this this kind of you know trying to get young engineers involved what what are what are some of the things that uh, you know you you try to communicate to younger engineers um, when they you know just to just to help them you know avoid some of the difficulties that that you may have seen well. I mean, I think the interesting thing, really fascinating change that's happened is that actually the young engineers are the only people who've ever been taught about sustainability. So it's only been around as a sort of thing to study for 10 years. Um, And then you've got how things happen and how to make things happen, which is embedded in the, the older generation. So we have a really interesting combination at the moment where this is why I think the respect issue is, is very important, and it's a two-way respect. It's necessary for the the young engineers not to think they can just whiz through and, and just say things and they'll happen. They have to understand that if they want them to happen, they're going to have to explain to an older engineer, and then it will happen because the, the processes are quite key to our industry. So understanding the processes is quite important. Understanding that it's fine to say what you think. Um, you, the aim of the exercise is to talk sense. It's not to just deliver what somebody is asking you about. It's about thinking creatively and contributing your ideas as long as you know what you're talking about. So I would say at the moment there's a big opportunity for young engineers to say what they know about and that is about sustainability certainly here and if they want to get on they should explain it and explain how it can happen and that's a debate between generations so that we can all then turn it into something that we actually want to happen because we don't want to we want a better society in the future that's more fun to be living in get on with it i would say (laughs) be ambitious (laughs) so So, uh, through through all your career what what have some been some of the fun projects that you've worked on uh a fun project. <laughs> or, or a favourite project. The trouble is with projects is I find that they're, they're fantastic fun and then they go through this really hard bit where you actually build it and <laughs> it gets a bit stressful. <laughs> they're nice to look back on later on. So I've done some really interesting projects in my life. I've been incredibly lucky and that's even from the very early stages. I mean, I remember one of the first buildings I ever did was uh, in the sort of uh, late 80s was a uh, uh, an extension to a house um, where the client wanted it to be completely glass. And when he said completely glass, uh, we said, all right, what do you mean? Well, all of it, okay. So it's structural glazing. It's uh, The heating system was the glass. So you control the temperature of the glass. It's electrically coated glass, so you can control the temperature. So that was really just a challenge, you know, a challenge and an interesting one. Um, and then I, I did. Uh, I persuaded the University of East Anglia that they they should adopt um, a low energy approach, a life cycle approach to buildings. And um, we built in the early 90s uh, several student residences, which are really elegant um, buildings, but were hitting sort of. Uh, they were pressure tested, so to 50 pascals to check their air leakage. They were highly insulated. They had heat recovery ventilation in them. Lots and lots of innovative things. They had siphonic drainage systems. Very exciting. Really interesting things. And then probably there's two further ones, or three maybe. I did a thing called the University of Sangley Elizabeth Fry Building, which um, is is where we we removed the heating and cooling systems from the building and just did ventilation. And to control the temperatures of that ventilation, rather to control the temperature within the spaces, we ventilated the concrete slabs. 
so so that they turn into a um, a uh, sort of radiant heating and cooling system. So we we built on what we previously done by isolating the outside of the building with a lot of a lot of uh, insulation and air tightness, and then controlling the temperature just with the structure. Uh, that was good. We then took on to if you can that that involves storing heat from sort of uh, day to night. And the fascinating thing with that is the building becomes amazingly insensitive to what's going on outside. And then you realize that there's other fluctuations, which are seasonal fluctuations. So that became a major challenge to see if we could hit how can you design a building that will use the seasonal fluctuations. So use the excessive heat to warm you in winter and use the excessive cold to cool you in summer. And that involved uh, reorientating the location of, uh, of insulation layers. There's a, that, that actually came from America. That initially, that was a that was a Rocky Mountain guy and uh, Rocky Mountain Institute, I think it was. And he and uh, so we did one of those. That's passive interseasonal heat storage. And then we looked at active seasonal heat storage, which is probably where we are now, which is uh, it's collecting the heat. And I I built a building recently, which is. Uh, uses a tarmac outside uh, a school tarmac playground to warm the school by storing the heat underneath it and putting it back into the winter using heat pumps. And now we're doing that at a at large scale. So we're now using the aquifers to store the heat and cool and deliver them back into large groups of buildings. And that's where we've got to at the moment. We, well, That's where we are. I think you know it's about realizing that large-scale storage of heat at the temperatures you need is available, can be collected, and can be used in the building. And that's where we've got to at the moment. It's, it's brilliant at the moment. Sounds absolutely fascinating. Now, the, 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 uh, the storage that you're talking about, I mean, uh, you know, obviously when you, when you say storage, I think of like, uh, uh, like a geothermal heat exchange Kind of, yeah. kind of. That's story. all we're talking about. I mean, it, it's just that uh, it. I mean, you you've got geothermal heat pumps, and they they just drag heat out of uh, the ground, and it naturally goes back in, and it's just enhancing those processes. That's all we're talking about. And heat pumps are now becoming you know, ground source heat pumps are not not new anymore. But you know, ten fifteen years ago, they were new. And uh, the way we were thinking about it was not concentrating on the heat pumps, but concentrating on what was going on underneath the ground and, what, and how to enhance that effect. So, you know, I'm looking at uh, de-icing roads using stored summer heat without any heat pump and things like that. So it's... Mm. Okay. Yeah. All right, excellent. Um, now, uh, I, I guess... Uh, we're pretty much uh, wrapping things up. I don't know if there's anything that that you wanna you wanna you know anything final that you want to say about Sipsy or not. Well, I mean, I, what I, I I'm really pleased with at the moment is uh, is Sipsy's relationship with Ashray, which is is really going from strength to strength. I see at the moment, and and it's encouraging. You know, we 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 need to work together. Uh, I can see some excellent work that Ashray is doing. And I would love to see that relationship turn into something solid, you know, solid and enable us to, to work together around the world more effectively. So I'm hopeful we're going to, I'll be at Ashray in uh, Chicago and I'm looking forward to it and I hope uh, we have some good discussions. Excellent, excellent. Now I, I have to ask one of my one of my favorite shows, kind of off topic here, uh, is uh, <laughs> Top Gear. Um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why is it your favorite show? <laughs> no, you know what? It, it, it's it's I, I find it. I, you know, I guess you know Monty Python's been a big. Uh, you know, I, I I love the Monty Python. Um, you know, the British humor, so to speak. Um, but uh, Top Gear is, is you know it's one of these. I, I, I there's something just something about it. It's it's entertaining and it's some you know visceral sort of 
Uh, <laughs> I think it's brilliant. I have to say this is uh, probably getting me lots of trouble with lots of green people, but actually um, I don't particularly like the fact they're concentrating on uh, on supercars and fast cars, but the excitement in, in the engineering of it all is what I find fascinating. You know, this, Absolutely. You know, it's, um, <laughs> and I, I've seen... Uh, have you have you seen all the, the oh, what's the who are the three people? There's Ham, Hammond. Uh, yeah, Hammond, uh, Jer- Richard Hammond, Hammond. Jeremy, um, and uh, the the other guy, the John, um, the other end of the scale. Uh, yeah, the one the one who's sort of a uh, slightly. Um, so they call Captain Slow, I believe. Yeah, him. He <laughs> has done some wonderful challenges with universities uh, about. You know, <laughs> he, he's built a bridge out of Meccano. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah he did, and he, he's done this sort of like taking a, a slot car around the original track, which is now uh, the original um, big bowl that is, is a racetrack, which now half of it is actually housing estates and God knows what else. And he's, he's got the whole communities actually acting together. And that's all about excitement and enthusiasm for engineering, which I think is great. I hate his um, green views, but <laughs> but the excitement is good. <laughs> yes. yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, yeah, it's, it's it's funny. I, you know, I stumbled upon it a couple of years ago, and I, I it just it's one of these fascinating things that I, I actually I watched uh, three episodes yesterday. I was, you know, blowing off some some time, and I just for to, to prep for this a little bit, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll watch a couple of extra episodes. Yeah, well, my, daughter, my daughter's uh, decided to be an engineer, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's not part of it, because she's been an addict to it. <laughs> yeah. All right, excellent. And you, you don't offhand know the identity of the Stig, do you? No, I don't. Okay. Afraid not. I no. just have to. <laughs> <laughs> Can't help you there. Okay. Well, uh, and I will post a, a, a note in the in the show notes just in case people are totally lost of what we're talking about. But I um, uh, really appreciate you having uh, having um, uh, being on the show, Andy. Um, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, what what's the best way to get a get a hold of you? Uh, probably email me on uh, Andy Ford at motmac. That's M O T T M A C dot com. All right. And I will put that in the uh, the show notes so people won't have to scurry and write it down right now. But, uh, again, I appreciate you being on the show. And uh, I guess uh, continued luck on your uh, uh, presidency and hope everything goes uh, as you had planned. Well, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure to speak. All right, and we're back. Well... Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed the uh, the interview. I would like to again, once again, thank Andy Ford for taking time out of his busy schedule uh, to be able to talk with me. Um, it was a it was a great time. I, you know, kind of in talking with Andy, it, it really is. Um, you really have to change. There has to be this paradigm shift uh, between the old way we engineer things and the new way we engineer things. And I, you know, now that uh, things are, everybody's becoming so energy focused and energy conscious. Um, I think kind of, you know, after after we had the interview, I had a chance to chat a little bit with Andy. Um, and one thing that, that struck me that he said was that, um, uh, you, you know, when I would say. You know, when people take a look, when engineers take a look at making a system more energy efficient, they tend to make it more complicated. And, you know, he's, he said, you know, it, really it's not about making more complicated because that only makes things, uh, you know, inevitably fail. But it's, a, it's about taking things out. And I think, you know, you really have to, uh, if you're going to make something simple, you know, obviously the the, kilo, the the most efficient kilowatt is the one that you don't use. The most piece, the most efficient piece of equipment is the one that's not in the system. You know, it's it's something that you have to. We have to learn to simplify systems to use the building more effectively at uh, you know acting as its own system, um, and not necessarily just adding more equipment, more complicated equipment, uh, more you know complicated sequences. Uh, so, uh, you know. 
really that that's that's kind of my two cents in, in the whole conversation. But uh, really great to uh, hear Andy. Uh, if you want, uh, again, there's a few things that I'm going to add to the show notes uh, for you uh, for contacting. If you have any suggestions, uh, you can always shoot me an email, uh, matt at buildingx.co, or uh, you can follow me, uh, just connect with me on LinkedIn, or if you want to follow me on Twitter, if that's uh, something that uh, you're into, I'm at buildingx. So if you like this episode or want to hear different topics, let me know. Uh, If you liked uh, what you heard, why don't you share it with a friend? Uh, I'd appreciate that. And if you want to uh, know, uh, you know, obviously we have a, a, um, a newsletter uh, that goes out monthly. Uh, it's it's brief. It's not too bad. And it's just kind of a recap of, of where we've been. If you uh, don't necessarily connect with us on a uh, regular basis, it's, it's, a, it's a great way to, to touch base. So, And I kind of throw a couple behind-the-scenes things in there uh, from week to week and kind of give you a little heads up of what's coming. So... If you do that, go to buildingx.co, and it's right there on the upper right. Sign up, and it's fairly painless. All right, well, I guess that's it for this week. I appreciate everybody listening. Uh, It's really great to be able to do this, and uh, I think that hopefully you've found some value in it. So until next time, remember, know what you build and share what you know. (laughs) 